Welcome to Counterpoint Conversations, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon as part of the Counterpoint Women in Government series. Counterpoint will build a picture of the participation of women in government and uncover how the diversity of views affects its outcomes. How does having more women in senior leadership positions actually change the way policy is developed? And does it fulfill its goal to achieve better quality outputs? This podcast series will comprise women from the private sector engaging with their government counterpoints to explore how their experiences differ and to determine how we can draw on the best practices from each area. Counterpoint Conversations will analyze the themes surrounding the role women play in government and the broader workforce and the structural and cultural factors that impact how they're supported during their career progression. From defense and intelligence to science and business, we'll speak with some of the women in our government and private sector ranks who are achieving incredible things. Get ready to be informed and engaged with CounterPoint Conversations by Verizon. Welcome to Diversity and Indigenous Representation in AI, just part of the CounterPoint Conversation podcast series. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Wangal people of the Eora Nation on the lands that we are meeting today and pay my respect to Elders, past, present and emerging. This discussion will focus on how responsible AI and science is being combined with Indigenous knowledge and systems to solve complex problems, both in Australia and abroad. I think with the speed of which AI is emerging as a leading technology, there's an important conversation to be had about how we're learning from knowledge systems that have been built over thousands of years. I have with me to discuss this Angie Abdilla, who's the CEO of Old Ways New and a member of the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Artificial Intelligence for Humanity. Stefan Heikovic, Senior Principal Scientist and Strategic Foresight and Director of Data61 Insights Team, joins Angie in this fascinating discussion about AI and how we encompass all views as we build these systems into the future. Angie and Stefan, welcome to the conversation today as part of our CounterPoint series. This is an area that absolutely fascinates me. As technology has been speeding up and the way we look at technologies like AI and machine learning and and how they layer on top of, you know, the ways our society functions and, and understands the way different knowledge systems exist. I'm really keen in the work that both of you do in understanding how we look at our past to be able to understand how we can apply technology to our future. Angie, I might start with you, if you don't mind, giving a bit of background on your role and the sort of work that you're doing and the recent work with the World Economic Forum as an example. Yeah, um, so in the work we do, we're always looking for the precedent. So we know our peoples are the longest continuum of culture and civilization on this planet, on the driest continent on earth. And so just taking a moment to really deeply think about that, really letting that drop in, of course, the different knowledge systems that exist within this continent and within our knowledges, our knowledge systems are extremely sophisticated. When you're talking about the harshness of this environment and just how over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, our communities not just survived, but were thriving, thriving, healthy communities with no disease, no major war and so forth 
Of course, there was always inter-tribal issues, but our governance systems and the ways of living with land and with supported a rich and healthy and vibrant culture that still exists today. So, you know, of course, there's an incredibly important set of different precedents that we can learn from around social and environmental sustainability principles and practices, and also how those social and environmental sustainability principles and practices have informed a methodological approach to design and engineering of technologies. So, of course, pre-digital, but when we look at, you know, those examples, there's plenty of them and they still all exist today as incredible examples of design ingenuity, like the boomerang, like Spinifex resin, like the fish traps, like many, many others. You've brought up a whole range of things of which technology is one. Design is another feature, which is something I think we don't think about, you know, very clearly often. And the other is the idea of governance. And I think that that's a fascinating place. And Stefan, I'm keen to bring you in here. At the moment, it seems if you're reading the financial papers, you know, the notion of ESG is a big challenge for organisations. In your observation, in terms of the work that you do, the idea of governance and what we can learn from First Nations cultures that clearly had very, you know, sophisticated ways of sort of governing quite harmonious and prosperous societies. It's kind of interesting to think that this is a challenge today, but it's been dealt with in an incredibly sophisticated way for thousands of years. My view is governance is pretty critical to solving all these sorts of things. But Angie, thanks for that insight. And I'd say the fact that prior to European arrival, Indigenous culture had been here and prospered for so long gives it the definition of sustainability. So governance, I think, is core to how well we go through problems like climate change, how well we'll go through adapting, adopting new technologies like artificial intelligence. Governance is actually core to how these things work. A lot of the tech problems we work on, we pretty soon get to the point of realising there are some governance issues. There's ethics, there's fairness, there's the uh, social adoption and impact of these things. I was brought into CSIRO in 1999 is when I started working on dry land salinity on Australian farms of the soils becoming more saline because we'd removed the trees. And basically water tables went up and concentrated salts in the landscape, causing it to lose productivity which is a pretty significant problem. But the hydrology of it, the science of the problem was pretty quickly established. We could work out what was going on and how it was happening. But the adaptation for farmers, for communities affected by this problem was not so simple. How do we get the change on the landscape that we need to ensure the continued productivity of these systems, the sustainable use of the, the land? And that is a much harder challenge. You know, the science of proving climate change is happening was pretty easy, actually. We, we've done it 20 years ago. That This has been well established. The massive adaptation that sits before the world that we have to, that, that developed and developing countries have to switch off carbon emissions, how that social and economic pathway from here to there happens that is where a lot of Nobel Prizes will be had in terms of it's a governance question. It's who gets to decide. And my feeling is ultimately the prosperity and sustainability of societies come down to their ability for governance. And that's what's interesting to me, Angie, is how governance happened in Australia for 40-odd thousand years. And apologies, I've got the exact numbers wrong. But that gives us insight to governance and sustainability. And yeah, as we look to the future, questions of governance are pretty central to questions of tech. We can come up with the most amazing tech, but we will not solve will possibly make things worse if the governance aspects, the societal aspects, the economics of it isn't thought out as well. I think what you've touched on, Stefan, is really 
really important because what I heard a number of times there was talking about productivity and productivity of our environment, I think is the problem. You know, when we start to assume that land and all of our natural resources are a product in themselves and we as humans have the right to extract as much as we can, that there is the problem. So what we understand from an Indigenous perspective is that we have, and not just here in Australia but across the globe, one of the things that aligns us as Indigenous peoples is our relationship to the environment. We are part of it. It is part of us. Yeah, That's really, really critical. We don't sit on top of and have the same sort of dominion over protocol that Western societies typically have, which are hierarchical in nature and often assume that humans have the right to take, yeah. take, take. So what we're talking about here is different models, distribution and accumulation. So what we understand is that over time we have had, and this is, you know, once again globally as Indigenous peoples, we understand that when we work, we live with the land, it's a model of distribution, resource distribution, not resource accumulation and the individualization of resources. So right there is the fundamental issue is that we as a society have to start looking at the business models that have typically the capitalist business model and how do we grapple with that? How do we start to shift people's minds to understand what are the different ways in which we can start looking at our relationship to the environment and our natural resources and think about distribution as opposed to accumulation. I think the era we're moving into in the 2020s, we see reality biting a bit for the global economy really in that climate change is going to be so real for the next 10 years. The Earth's ability to assimilate more and more carbon is you know, hitting its thresholds and the bushfires of 2019 and 2020 were our wake-up call in Australia, but you know, a hell of a lot more of that is in the pipeline. And I think there's other aspects to this as well. There's a amount of garbage floating around the Pacific Ocean that's greater than France in size, you know, that assimilative capacity is going to hit a a threshold as well. So, you know, I think we're going to see some of this and it's going to be the challenge of our time to see if we can cooperate and then start to what you're saying, I think, about, you know, we don't own the environment to do what we want with it. We've got to have that acknowledgement that we are part of this ecosystem, which we can break as well. And if you look at climate change, it does look like we're breaking it a bit. And it's really interesting to see how we go as we chart our pathway forward. But it is a governance question and it is a societal question about how we move forward on these massive environmental challenges that are before us. They're a survival issue for the human race and it requires a change in thinking. I would say, though, I think we are seeing industry pick up this agenda. You know, the private sector has been hugely active across the globe, and we're actually seeing some really good initiatives come out of the private sector to tackle these problems. So there is a hope that that we see, yeah, it's it's not that they're all the baddies, really, I, I guess. is I'm, I know you're not saying that, but I think it's the possibility that solutions come out of the private sector, that come out of capitalism as well, to help us solve these problems. I think we can see evidence of that occurring. Whether or not we get there or not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Can I ask, you have a, a really good view from a global perspective, and I know that you are a co-founder of initiatives that really bring together leaders in First Nations communities from around the world. It's really interesting to see in everything that Stefan's just said about 
from capitalism sort of understanding that First Nations knowledge is actually really important, particularly as we're getting to the point where the fragility of our environment is being brought into focus. What are the sorts of conversations or what are the sorts of things that we need to understand when you're having those conversations with your peers in other parts of the world? I think we all understand that capitalism is eating itself from the inside out and what we understand is that, of course, we have to work with this model. You know, we, we are in it. And I do also believe, Stefan, that the private sector is actually where the solutions are. I think that the lack of leadership of our nation states is just unbelievable. Like the conversations that I've been hearing about from COP26 at the moment is just frightening how base level it is. So I really do believe as well, Stefan, that that it is the private sector that has the capacity to really drive the changes, the systemic change that's required for us to start seeing a different way that natural resources are considered and how the recognition and the shift around those different particular models from, as I mentioned, you know, accumulation to distribution because there's still, I don't know exactly how, but I do believe there is a way, that it is a fundamental yeah. shift. It's a paradigm shift that needs to occur. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, so accumulation to distribution, and I think there is a, a social equity aspect to some of this too. It's the solutions to things that we've looked at, like global food security. There's never been a not enough food problem for humanity. When you do the numbers on it, the Earth's ability to produce food is is many times what we would need, even under climate change scenarios. Food is about a lack of distribution. No one in Africa ever starved due to not enough food. That place can easily make enough food. It's armed conflict, it's corruption, it's governance issues. That's when we studied global food security. We, we looked at food price volatility that moves in food prices, but Pretty quickly, my mind went to these questions of this isn't a not enough food problem because when we get our scientists to do the numbers on food output from the continent of Africa, it's good. It's easily good. And it's uh, the question around distribution. So I think, you know, I agree on, on that front. And I think a lot of the problems we look at, it's how well we do at sharing resources. And I think that's what is also really interesting in Indigenous culture is the ability that they had to find mechanisms to share. We unlock that sharing. We get security and trust. And at the country level, we can move together. And ultimately, this is what you know climate negotiations are all about, is coming to a point where, yes, if we shut off all our emissions and no one else does, we get harmed and they we get no benefit. But if everyone does it, then it works. And I think it's getting to the point of trust where nations trust each other to all start to shut down emissions is where we want to get to. But that means a trusting world. It means a collaborative world. Yeah, so it takes us back to some of these questions of governance. And that's where I think we reflect on the Indigenous culture and governance and sharing and how did sharing happen? Because these are really consistent, regardless of what racial background you've got, what culture you're from, that issue of sharing with other human beings is pretty central to problem solving, I think. Stefan, I'm really keen to move to the, just take the thread of trust. And now we're in a situation where technology is part of our everyday life. And in an increasingly pivotal role. When we yep. talk about trust and we talk about algorithms and we're now asking for the way that artificial intelligence solves our problems, complements our lives, helps us with buying decisions. You know, it, it affects every single part of our life. And with all yep. the things we just talked about in terms of structural understandings and ways of looking at the world, you know, now we're laying on this super complex artificial intelligence, al- or the algorithms or the algos, what do we need to be making sure that we're really learning 
about things we may not have understood well in the past and maybe you know, the gender discussion we haven't done very well in the way that we look at inclusion into lots of these things. But how do we make sure that not only we take account for things like gender, but that we're actually accounting for a much more sophisticated understanding of First Nations cultures and knowledge systems? That's a very long question. but Well, there's a couple elements to it, and Angie, keen on your views, but I think foresight is pretty central. And I'm actually, as a foresight professional, I'd love to learn more about how Indigenous cultures looked into the future. But foresight, let's go back to when we invented the automobile, right? There was a lot of good. It was a fantastic, amazing, powerful thing. We all wanted one, but there was going to be pollution, congestion, car accidents, a massive death toll from car accidents from that invention. Could we have started to factor some of this into our thinking that we weren't just building an automobile, we were creating a lot of change? As we look at artificial intelligence, this is an incredibly powerful technology. It's a general purpose technology. I think the relationship we would often give is to electricity in the early 1920s. It goes across all sectors of the economy, all industries. And the 100-year study into AI by Stanford University is released as an excellent report. It's titled Gathering Strength, Gathering Storms. Yes, we've seen amazing breakthroughs in natural language processing, machine learning, robotics, computer vision over the last five years. You know, what we couldn't have thought possible is possible. It's transforming how we do science. Knowledge discovery is being reinvented by artificial intelligence. When Google's company DeepMind published in Nature on it, it's AlphaGo that beat Lee Sedol at that Chinese game Go, more complex than chess. First one was learn to play Go by human play data. The second one that got the scientific community out of bed, learn to play Go on its own. It developed its own strategies and own rules and heuristics about how to win. And it became completely unstoppable. It beat the other one 100 games to nil, which beat best human player. And we're seeing this possibility that artificial intelligence changes the scientific process, which is potentially what matters most. If it gives us new ways of uncovering knowledge and new pathways to discovery, that is pretty interesting where the the human brain has hit a wall, but we have this machine-based learning approach that unleashes something new. That's the ground that we're entering into. But this report by Stanford is called Gathering Strength, Gathering Storms, because Yes, the last 10 years have seen enormous capability development in artificial intelligence. It's a very powerful technology that we have at our fingertips. But gathering storms is also the potential dangers that is starting to loom. We've seen a lot of that around the social media companies that use algorithms to determine what you see and what you don't. But we know they can be manipulated to, very subtly manipulated, to start to change your behavior, even change who you vote for or what you do. The marketing is is getting better and better. It's pretty critical. And then Trust and transparency get into it more and more. There are fields of AI that are emerging now which are dealing with these questions of trusted AI, explainable AI, how to make it transparent. The European data governance framework is looking at being amended to handle, like if you cannot explain how your AI works, you're not allowed to use it on anything serious. And I think those sorts of things are what we need to look at. We wrote the ethics principles for Australia on AI and they're good, I wonder whether what our principles will start to move into legislation at some point once we start to comprehend what's possible with AI. So, yeah, I think we are at the beginning of something really interesting with artificial intelligence, but it's pretty critical that humanity gets in the driver's seat and steers this one. So if we look back at technologies of the past, let's think about all the good things they created, but all the bad things they created, and let's start to drive this towards more of the good things and be aware and sensitive of what those look like. Angie, we're at a moment. What does that moment look like to make sure that any of those systems that Stefan was talking about are inclusive and shape the future in a more inclusive way? What do we need to be thinking about? 
Well, I think there's a lot of power dynamics that are assumed within the language and discussions around ethics, values, principles, and even equity and diversity. You know, the conversations that I hear, like, for example, within the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on AI for Humanity, you know, we're talking about equity and diversity, but really it gets so flattened so quickly. What we're talking about when we naturally hear about ethics is Western ethics. What we naturally are talking about when we hear values and principles, we're naturally talking about Western values and principles. When we hear people talking about equity and diversity, it's typically non-Indigenous peoples talking about equity, having more brown-skinned people as part of the machine, just different coloured cogs within the machine. What's missing here is leadership, is cultural diversity, different ways of understanding, thinking, being, seeing, knowing, doing, so ontologies and epistemologies, but also, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, governance. So if we're talking about governance models and we're looking at these super machines and how, I guess, you know, the utopian and dystopian futures that these super machines have the capacity to produce, who's driving it? It's not the machines themselves are the problems. It's us. It's the humans that are actually creating them. That is the issue. So if we're talking about the critical issues behind these super machines, it's really always comes back to the governance. So what I think needs to happen right now is we need to start fleshing out the language of equity and diversity to start exploring what do we mean by that and how do we ensure that different ways of being, seeing, knowing, doing, different governance models, social and environmental sustainability principles that have been tried, tested and proven over time by Indigenous peoples can be embedded into the systems design itself. So that's what we've been doing. We've actually just published a paper with UNESCO on the blind spots of AI. And what we've been looking at is how, from a a methodological perspective, we can explore how these cultural insights can be translated into standards, cultural standards, cultural protocols, and then what is the, the transistory language or that transitional language that's required to then embed those values and principles into the programming logic of the machine itself. And then what we can see is a different type of methodology taking place, one that values transparency and accountability and one that also ensures the cultural capacity of the developers and that the cultural insights are being embedded and the values and principles are being embedded into the developmental process itself. So we're not just talking about high-level ethics and values and policy. We're actually looking at the translation of those different cultural insights. Of course, they also need to be at a policy level, but we're talking about the translation of those into the developmental practices themselves because it's not enough to just simply have more brown-skinned people seem to be included in the conversation without the actual developers themselves having the cultural capacity to understand their own biases and the various different assumptions that are being baked into these machines. Can I ask, Stefan, we're going to come up to time really quickly, but I really wanted to, that's a really important, I think, insight. You're sitting in an environment where you've got a bird's eye view over Data61 as an organisation, the research community, the skills of who those developers are, And when you're adding a layer of that kind of experience and insight, how hard is that to do? Like, what do we need to do to shift it at that core level? 
to be able to make sure that, you know, what Angie's saying about how do we need to actually change those microstructures? Yeah, well, look, I really want to get this report blind spots of AI. I think it is what you're saying is right. We need the values and principles of humanity put into this of all different cultures. Whether we're getting there or not, probably not. You know, this is one of the challenges. When we build machine learning, it has masses of data fed in into it to train. Typically, that's how most AI is. It's just heaps of data. And it learns from that data how to do a task, perform a problem, or make an autonomous decision. And increasingly, that autonomous decision has real implications for people's lives. It might be behind whether or not you get a home loan. It might be behind whether or not you get accommodation, for example, but it might it might start to shape the, the nature of your cities. And I think all of this can be really good, right? All of this can make things better for humanity, all our different cultures, if, if we ensure the values of the people impacted by those decisions and the stakeholders are put into those algorithms and the data that the machine learns from. That is a pretty big if, and actually achieving that is harder. Right? You know, human-centered design is starting up we funded a new initiative inside Data61 and CSIRO called Sintel, the Collaborative Intelligence. It's about how humans work with machines. But I think it's the beginning of a journey for us to really understand the human being as an individual and the society and the culture that, that sits at the end of this so that the algorithms we develop are consistent with what people actually value and they're, they're harmonious. I think this is the second wave of innovation of AI. We've, we've amazed ourselves at the capabilities we've created, the gadgets, the ability of a machine to look at a photo and work out exactly what it is a picture of and then start to use that data to do things has been incredible. The next wave of innovation is about the human-centered AI and culturally sensitive AI that, that really responds to what people want. This is also really quite complex. So the analogy I'd make to climate change, the science of it was the beginning. The cultural and social adaptation pathway was the next bit that was really important if we were really going to see the problem solved. But to realize the benefits of AI, yeah, I think we need to take this journey to understanding the um, way that it impacts people, humans, cultures and societies, and then make it harmonious with that. And that is going to be a journey ahead of us that, that I think we're starting out on. But Angie, it's good to make the connection and it's, it's good for us to start to look at things like the blind spots of AI. You know, I'm a believer in AI. I think it is a massive boon for humanity. This gives us the opportunity to improve fairness in the criminal justice system. It actually improves outcomes for people who are discriminated against because trained properly, AI doesn't care what your gender is, what your racial background is. It will do things objectively if designed properly. AI can help do things more efficiently. There's so much in the pipeline for human health and well-being that we can get from AI that I think you know, a lot of the ethics is really about using it faster and more. But there is another dimension to ensuring that it is designed to respond to what people actually need and really figuring out how it impacts them at a, at a deeper level because and it can be harmful too. I think there's um, one of the critical issues that I see. I, I'm also really optimistic about the capacity of AI, but I also am super critical around the human-centred design principles and practices because it's typically centering quite reductive user groups in the centre of all decision-making. That is the problem. It's the paradigm shift that's required. We need to understand that we are part of country, whether you're Indigenous or not, and country is, country is part of us and we are part of it. If we keep centering humans at the centre of all decisions and start embedding those values and principles into these super machines, that's really problematic. What we need is a different way of understanding the role and the place 
of these machines and our responsibility to the machines and their responsibility, transparency and accountability to us. So once again, it comes back to this issue of governance. How do we see ourselves and the relationality that we have with our environment, with our communities, and how do these machines fit within our society? I think we tend to assume that these machines have a lot of rights and privileges. And we can see that over, you know, the, over time, you know, we look back to the Industrial Revolution, technology is often sat outside of the realms of law and governance and society. If, if you look over time, we've given technology a really, I guess, a, you know, a significant place within our society. It sits kind of above and beyond. What we need to do is start having those conversations about how we relate to these technologies and how do we make sense of it how do we ensure that we've got the good governance systems and structures and also, you know, the conceptual design and development of these machines being typically assumed that they're based on the human brain, like, you know, neural networks and machine learning, deep learning. A lot of the conceptual design has been based on the a lot of the limitations of us as humans and all of embedded within these machines. If we start looking at the broader systems that we have around us and the sophistication of those different systems, yeah. then we can start learning a lot more around how automation can evolve over time to work in a symbiotic relationship to the environment and to us and with yeah. us. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. Symbiotic and harmony is where we're going. But in the early part of the Industrial Revolution, the first half of it, living standards went down for people, not up, as we invented all these amazing machines. They worked in in horrible conditions in factories, dangerous pollution went up. It wasn't a great story until we got about 50, 60 years into it and figured out how to govern it all better and how to how to build good societies around it. So I think I think that is there. AI sometimes mimics a human, but sometimes it does stuff that is really counterintuitive to us. And this is what I think is the power of AI. If you're playing chess and you're playing against an AI component, you know it pretty quickly because it makes a move near the beginning of the chess game that you just can't figure. It doesn't make any sense. And it's about 15 moves down the track that it unravels. And it, it, it's, it's outside the way we think. And this is, this is AlphaGo and the, the, some of the most significant breakthroughs in AI have given us highly counterintuitive solutions. When AI is used in gaming and it beats a human opponent, it often does really unexpected stuff that we just don't think of. So you know, this is part of the power of AI for problem solving. And I think the last thing I'd say is that we absolutely need to have this governance wrapped around it. We need to have the human-centered approaches, but we don't want to extinguish any of the innovation going on in AI. And that's the thing with technology. Yes, it does break outside of norms and rules because we, we're by definition going somewhere very new. That can be dangerous, but it can also be really positive. You know, this is how we advance our capabilities as humanity. So as we look at governance of AI, we've got to be careful not to extinguish innovation in that pathway. Ethics done badly can do this. Ethics done badly just doesn't really think and just puts a big bureaucratic stamp across everything. It doesn't really help anyone. Done well, it allows that innovation to occur. You know, I also agree that innovation comes from good governance too. That example is really true. For example, you know, we've been prototyping a neural net and exploring how genetic algorithms can be designed on the basis of our kinship systems. So our kinship systems, you know, differ across the continent and they all have various different sort of particular characteristics. Some of them are far more complex than others. But what we've been finding is that, not surprising for me at all, 
who sits at the table matters. If you have a group right. of developers that don't have the cultural capacity to understand the sophistication of these different systems, these different systems that have that have nurtured our communities, kinship systems are basically designed to keep our bloodlines clean. That's why we had no disease before the Europeans came, no right. disease whatsoever. The kinship systems and the strict marriage laws that pertain to these particular kinship systems have kept our communities healthy over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. They don't just govern who you marry, they also include fauna and flora and how you relate and how you're responsible for all those different, your kin but also your country. So when we take those examples, those key algorithms and those patterns within those kinship systems and explore how they can inform the way we conceptualise genetic algorithms, then there's a lot of opportunity there. The issue being, if you don't have the right people at the table, you don't have the cultural capacity or the governance, embedded methodological processes, nothing works. It doesn't translate. It's kind of like Mother Nature is, you know, it's got the firewall up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, developers create AI that reflects their cultural background. And if they don't have that broader view, they'll just create it. You know, a lot of AI developers are aged between early 20s and 30s and overwhelmingly male. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they might not be representing in the way they create code and algorithms. So I think opening that up and having sensitivity, that important. But but um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 one of the challenges we need to crack. I don't know all the ways we achieve it, though, how we broaden the worldview of coding teams or whether we bring in people with different cultural backgrounds into those coding teams. How would we make them work together, though, I wonder? Like, practically, what would that look like? I think it's building cultural capacity. It's understanding. It's going back to what we talked about, governance, but also not flattening out these ideas, policies and frameworks around equity and diversity. Equity and diversity should not just be about more brown-skinned people. Often there's a lot of brown-skinned people that are just as colonised and non-Indigenous peoples. We need different cultural diversity, different ways of understanding these different complex knowledge systems and complexity theory, really, and how that applies when you're thinking about conceptualising and developing different ways of working with automation. There's the opportunity. There's innovation right there. Good governance and expansion around the cultural capacity of our developers and the different ways in which we can look to our environment, look to country and those different knowledge systems that exist there and how they themselves, the values and principles inherent within those knowledge systems, how they can inform the way we see or we can design automation. Yeah, I think what you say about good governance improves innovation is is highly accurate. Well-governed systems, that's like good governance doesn't mean oodles of bureaucracy that just drowns us because that would kill AI development. It would kill all sorts of science and technology innovation. We want good governance that creates room for innovation cleverly. And I, I think, you know, we're still finding some of those models yeah, uh, but that's part of it. But then I think I love the idea. I just I'm still grappling with my mind practically how it might look if we were to bring multiple cultural perspectives into AI development teams and how we would actually you know go from that concept, which is great, to a reality so that AI is guided by different whether whether there is, you know, are there indigenous communities developing their own AI out there that we can start to supplement and provide the technical capabilities, maybe in some instances, 
to help them build AI the way they think it should be built. Well, that's what we're doing right now. But I think it's right. actually, the assumption is that we need the technical capacity. The problem okay. being is the technical capacity is not the issue. What we need yeah. is a partners who have the cultural capacity and the technical skills. That's the issue. There's always right. this assumption that Indigenous peoples lack the capacity on all levels. In yeah. actual fact, it's non-Indigenous peoples that have got the yeah. That's where the issue is, is how do we build, how do we as Indigenous peoples and other peoples, typically other people, how do we support non-Indigenous peoples, typically white men, to expand <laughs> the cultural capacity so that we can explore what true innovation looks like? Yeah. That's where there's an opportunity there. We're not just talking about, you know, altruistic motivations here. We're talking about complex systems that have nurtured our environment over thousands, over millennia. Our people working with country and those various different complex systems, really complex systems, over millennia. That's where there's incredible opportunity to see how automation can evolve into the future in a way that has those value, social and environmental sustainability principles baked into, it. into it. Yeah, one thing I'd love to do, Angie, we've run strategic foresight research in CSIRO. That's sort of what I do for the last decade or so. It's fascinating where we're looking five to 20 years in the future. We're working on our update of our global megatrends report right now, which will take a look at the decades after the pandemic. But I'd love to work with people like yourself, Indigenous communities, about how they think about the future as well and see if we can, the sort of methodologies that we've developed, how can we start to learn and share? And I think that'd be a fascinating thing to do, basically. Yeah. Well, yeah. typically across the globe, what you find is Indigenous peoples all, we're always planning many generations yeah. in advance. So we, we look back into deep time. And but how do you advance. handle all the uncertainty about the future? So from where we are today, what sort of tools or approaches or concepts are used to think about all the uncertain futures that lie ahead of us? Like how well, does that I happen? Think, I mean, the elders that we work with and that I highly respect mm. talk about these issues as not being new. You know, we've no. survived ice ages. Yeah. You know, people have stories that we still tell today that reflect those experiences you know our oral culture our history has encoded within those stories those knowledges so you know it's so important to work to nurture those relationships and find meaningful ways that we can listen sit down and really listen because, you know, when we're talking about Indigenous knowledge systems, often people kind of be waiting for the holy grail to kind of be bestowed upon them. It's actually in the various different stories and the various different yarns that we have where those knowledges evolve and they're shared. You know, you can't just expect. It happens over time. It happens through meaningful relationships that have trust, that are equitable, that are two-way, have reciprocity at the heart of them. So that's really how we work and it's slow work. You know, my uncle would say to me in Jamara, which is a Rajari word and it means to do with respect, with honour and slowly. And I remember when we started our company, he was also part of our one of the founders and he said, and I was writing this up and he said, I was like, yeah, but we're working with technology, uncle. Like, can we say to do with time? And he's like, no. 
No, that's what it is. It's to do with respect, with honour and and slowly. I like slowly. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, in that we're so rushed in everything we're doing in the environment I'm in. And it's like you almost feel guilty about stopping and really thinking. But, you know, before we do some of the big things we do, we should probably go on a big walk through the mountains and just think a lot <laughs> because we can we can waste a lot of money. We can we can get a lot of bad outcomes without doing that. I think that there is there is wisdom in that approach. Yeah, I see value in trying to bring some of that into how we go about doing it. But yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting set of questions. But I'm going to jump yeah. in here and I'm going to thank you for the most incredible conversation. I think when we sort of had the idea of counterpoint, this has been the most perfect example of knowledge sharing and open conversation that really does have lots of light bulb moments and I, I really hope that this is the first of a series of conversations because whether things are happening really quickly or whether they're taking things slowly and with consciousness I really hope we can continue the dialogue and thanks to both of you for joining us today yeah my pleasure thank you Angie that was really interesting yeah um, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this special CounterPoint Conversations podcast by Verizon. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit verizon.com.